Amen. All right. Genesis chapter 36. If you read ahead, I'm sure you're pumped. Like you're so excited to get into the, the uh, genealogy of Esau. You're like, this is my favorite chapter of the Bible. Um, you know, I can, pr- I can probably guarantee this is like going to be the best sermon you've heard on Esau's genealogy. <laughs> probably. Um, but uh, here's the thing. Here's something that I want to point out. I think that the biggest problem, the biggest hindrance to genealogies, to, to reading the genealogies and getting anything out of them, is the names. That's my argument, is that the names, if the names, if you just substituted names like Gary and Joseph and Bob and Sam, like if you just substitute those in, it would be way easier for you to to digest. But you just kind of get lost in the names. So we're going to get into it, um, and and I promise there's stuff in there. I got multiple pages, okay? So I'm just saying, like, there's stuff in here that we can get into that's actually interesting and and cool. so try not to get bogged down by the names. Also, just for, this is, a, this is a, just a tip for you. Um, if you were like ever in a Bible study and someone asked you to read uh, scripture out loud in the group and you come across a name, either like sometimes like this would be a nightmare for most people, but um, if you come across a name or even like a place name or something like that, a town that you're not sure how to pronounce it, just pick, a, pick away and pronounce it confidently don't pause, just say it, and no one will question you. And just so you know, that's what I'm going with here. Okay, just to be clear. All right, Esau is Edom. The first section here, verses 1 through 8. These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Oholibama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. And Ada, born to Esau. Eliphaz, Basemath, bore Reuel. And Oholibama, bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into the land away from his brother Jacob. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. Okay. So first off, we have Esau's wives. And if you remember from, if you go back a few chapters and just remember, Esau took wives from the Canaanites, um, which is in direct defiance to his family, like kind of family policy of not intermarrying. It hasn't necessarily been explicitly commanded like by God, don't intermarry with his people as it will be when they come out of Egypt and go back into the land of Canaan. He'll specifically tell them this is a command, this is a statute for you not to do this. But it's definitely family policy and something that God has indicated they shouldn't do because they don't want to mix with these people and get caught up with them and kind of be combined and become one family. Um, And so Abraham went and, and got a, 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 a wife for Isaac from his homeland. Jacob went back to their homeland to get his wife. It's kind of been a family policy and tradition not to intermarry here. And Esau does. He just goes out. He's whoever looks hot to him. That's who he's going to take and become his wife. 
It's really just he, he's whatever he wants is what he's going to do. In, in Genesis 24, we see Abraham institute this when he's talking about getting Isaac. And he's, in, he's, he's uh, instructing this servant of his to go back to the land to get a, a, uh, a wife for Isaac. He says, Swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son by the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. Okay, so that is what Abraham told his servant. That's how strong it was. And he, told, and he goes further in that discussion, if you go back and look at it, that he even tells him, like, well, what if I can't find one? And he says, then you're free from this, from this vow. But he knows he trusts that God will find a, um, someone for him that is appropriate. So we see that Esau married outside of God's will and blessing and promise, right? He, he goes outside of what God would have for him, outside of what God has kind of instructed his family to do, to marry outside of this. And the second thing we see here um, is that you know, kind of verse 6, it starts, he talks about the, this idea. He moves outside of the land of Canaan, right? He moves outside, and the land of Canaan is the promised land, right? He's moving outside of the promised land. He's kind of moving southeast, southeast of the promised land into this, the hill country of Seir. Um, and he says, it says that he does that because it says their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. Now, it's kind of a tricky statement because you know, it partly points to their prosperity, right? That they both were just prospering greatly. Jacob was, we, we saw that through his time up in Haran, that he just prospering greatly, bigger and bigger flocks. They're breeding like crazy and he's just doing super well. And Esau presumably is doing the same. He's doing really well and that kind of thing. But just before this, chapter before this, the Shechemites, before that whole incident, they were, they were confident of like, you know, this land's big enough for all of us. Like, we can all dwell here together. <clears throat> so I, I think this is a little bit more in the flavor of kind of the old Western trope of like, this town ain't big enough for the both of us, right? It's kind of more that feeling of like, Jacob and Esau, if they, still, if they stay this close together, their, their herdsmen are going to come in conflict over the best wells, over the best grazing land, or they're going to come in conflict here if they continue to do this. And so instead, he's like, let's just avoid this problem altogether. I'm going to move outside of the promised land. And what we see here, what's indicated here that we're supposed to get is that we see Esau moving away from God's will. Right? Moving outside and away from God. Right? He is taking deliberate steps away from God, both in who he chooses to marry, where he chooses to live, how he chooses to conduct himself. He's stepping away from what God has called his forefathers to. Right? His, his father is Isaac. His grandfather is Abraham. He's in that same arena, although he is stepping away from these promises in the direction that God has given his people. Right? And even if we go back and look at what happened when Esau lost the birthright, right? he's supposed to serve Jacob. That's the promise that his father gave him. or That's the, the prophecy his father gave him. The blessing his father gave him was, you're going to serve your brother. He could have stuck around and gone, okay, I recognize that Jacob is going to be the, the son of the promise. He's the heir, 
And so I want to be attached to him. I want to, I'll choose to submit to him and, and allow our families to dwell together and I'll seek to follow God the same way that Jacob does and I'll, I'll follow his lead. But instead he goes, no, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to come over here. I'm going to separate and move outside the promised land, away from God's will. I'm going to marry these people. He's taking steps away from God's will, even though he was in the family of the prom- in the promised family, right? He was part of that. And yet he's taking these deliberate steps away. And so we look at our own lives and go, where in my life have I taken deliberate steps away from God? Right? Maybe you can look back on your life even, maybe earlier in your life, there were times when you went, yeah, I took deliberate steps away from God. Right? Simple things. Simple things. I, I've seen this in kids that have grown up in the church and that kind of thing where they, you know, they have the faith of their parents, they're kind of a part of it, but then they take small steps away from God. Right? Even something as simple as whether or not they go to church every Sunday. Right? It's a big thing to say, like, it's not, it's not, it doesn't matter if you come to church on Sunday. That's not part of, that doesn't, it's not what makes you saved. And that's absolutely true. Right? Going, being inside of a church doesn't make you a Christian any more than being in McDonald's makes you a hamburger. Okay? It doesn't mean that, you're, that that's what you are. But it's not a good sign. Right? It's not a good sign and it's not good for your health and your growth and the way that God designed us to be. He designed us to be the body of Christ. And if a part of the body goes, I don't really need to be around the rest of the body. Or that's amputation. Or that's not part of that's, that's not a good sign. And so it's a similar kind of thing. When people start to do those things, they're taking these small steps away from God's will, away from what God would have for them, taking, separating themselves from the people of God. That's what Esau is doing here. And we've all had those temptations to kind of take those steps away and go, I'm going to do my own thing in this area of my life. I'm going to do my, follow my own path and not seek to live in God's will. All right, next section, verses 9 through 19, the Edomites. Now, <clears throat> most biblical scholars look at this section, and first, first off, you're going to note that it's somewhat of a repetition of the first eight verses. And so most biblical scholars go, okay, this was probably added a little later on, maybe even as late as King David's reign. It doesn't mean it's not scripture, doesn't mean it's not part of, uh, it's not true, but it's just added later on because it's kind of more expansive and, and talks in these terms and repeats what was already written there in verses one through eight. And so in this genealogy, this section of the genealogy, we're going to see how Esau kind of dominated and integrated himself in the, with the Horites, the, the, the original people of the land, um, and uh, through primarily through intermarriage. And so we're going to take it in three sections, because it's a pretty big, uh, big passage. And so we're going to take three sections. The first section I'm calling initiation. You're going to see kind of the very beginnings of him integrating himself with these people. Okay, verses 9 through 19. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau. Reuel, the son of Basemouth, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Taman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. Okay, Note, whenever there's this kind of like, they, they break off, and, and the, you know, they were just listening to names, and all of a sudden they break off, they're going to say, we have to say more about this person? That matters. Okay? So highlight, those are the kind of the things, to, that's where you're going to find the good stuff in these sections. Right? A lot of these guys never come up again. But these, these are the parts that matter. So first of all, you note there that Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, and 
Secondly, that she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. Amalek, I'll say right now, he's going to be the father of the Amalekites, which are going to be a big problem later on. Okay, keep going. These are the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Reuel, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the sons of Basemoth, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Olibama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore Esau, Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs of Taman, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korah, Gatam, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Ada. These are the sons of Reuel, Esau's son, chiefs of Nathan, Zerah, Shammah, Mizah. These are the chiefs of Reuel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basemoth, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Olibama, Esau's wife, the chiefs of Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs of born of Olibama, the daughter of Anna, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom. These are their chiefs. Okay. So, we still have a lot more. We still have a lot more. Okay, just saying. Buckle up. Okay. Um, first of all, you notice they keep saying, they keep emphasizing, like, Esau is Edom. These are the Esau, the Edomites. Esau and Edom are interchangeable words. But at the time, at the time that people would be reading this, they would just know about the Edomites, this big group of people known as the Edomites. And so he's got to be clear that that's Esau. That's Esau's um, family. Okay, so the first thing we see in this section is that intermarriage of these groups is kind of tentative. Um, and native wives of the Horites, the Horite wives, are accorded the status of concubines. So that's, a, that's why it's a big deal that Timnah is a concubine of Eliphaz. Because at the time, and, and this very beginning initiation period, it wouldn't have been socially acceptable to call her a wife. Right? So, so she's just the concubine. Right? But she fought, but she she mothers, she bears this very important offspring. And so that's noted there. Um, and even the fact that, 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 that's, that she's called the concubine shows that it's just, he's just initiating this process. He's not fully on board, still maybe trying to honor uh, God's plan, maybe still trying, trying to honor that in his family. They're still not fully bought in, not fully integrating into the, the groups of people, just kind of dipping their toe in. Just, I'll just have a concubine from these people. But notice that that's, that's often how we get into trouble, right, in our own lives. When we start to step away from God, it's just like, well, I'll just, it's not really that big of a deal. It's not a serious thing. I'm just kind of trying this out. I'm just going to kind of, it's not, it's not serious, not fully bought in. I'm just going to kind of try it. And that's what we see here with them. This initiating this process. Next section, section two, call assimilation. <coughs> These are the sons of Seir the Horite. Now, pause right there. Why are we all of a sudden, now we're going to talk about the, this is the genealogy, is not even Esau anymore. Now he's talking about the people of the land. Right? So right off you go, well that's weird, what, they're not even talking about, this is, these aren't people that are even related to Abraham at all. This is a total offshoot, so all of a sudden we're getting their, their offspring. What's going on? Let's keep reading. These are the sons of Seir the Horite, the inhabitants of the land. Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anna, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishon. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. 
See, and then notice right there, even the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. When he first moved there, it's the land of Seir. Now they're starting to be like, it's the land of Seir, Edom. We don't really know. It's kind of called both things. Right there, they're getting mixed up. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Hemam, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. There's Timnah again. These are the sons of Shobal, Alvan, Manatha, Abal, Shepho, and Onam. These are the sons of Zibion, Aya, and Anna. He is the Anna who found the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of Zibion, his father. These are the children of Anna, Dishon, Olibama, daughter of Anna. These are the sons of Dishon, Hemdan, Ishban, Ethron, and Cheron. These are the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Zavan, Akan. These are the sons of Dishon, Uz, and Aran. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs of Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anna, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishon. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief in the land of Seir. Okay, so you see it's getting more and more mixed up. And some of the people that are listed in here were listed in the previous section because they're, they're, they're starting to really assimilate, starting to really become one people. And if you notice, Oholibama is Esau's wife. Right? She is Esau's wife, and yet she was the daughter of Anna, this significant Horite. He's a prominent family, significant member of this Horite clan, and, he, and she, his daughter becomes Esau's wife. That's a, that's a strategic marriage that he makes there. So it's the strategic marriage of, I'm going to link myself, we're going to join our houses. He's intermarried to a prominent Horite family. And you know he's prominent because, notice how he even points him out. He's like, it's Anna, you know, Anna, hot springs guy. Remember the guy, he found the hot springs? He's, 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 he has dad's donkeys out there, and he found the hot springs? The hot springs, you know the hot springs. Anna! That's the kind of thing, he's like pointing out, like, that you see that kind of, again, it's another thing where you see this breakout of, I'm going to be specific about who this guy is. You're going to know who that guy is. Because, again, people that read this at the time, the very beginning, they go, oh, yeah, I know the hot springs in Seir or Edom, whatever you want to call it. I know that, the, uh, that's the guy who found it? That was Esau's wife, was his daughter? Oh, okay. Again, that's what it would be like reading this at the time. And that's what we want to get into and try to feel like, what was this like for people? That, what message were they taking away from it? The first people that this was written to. Because it clearly wasn't written to us, primarily. right? It's not written directly to us. It's written for our benefit. All Scripture is written for our benefit. But not all Scripture is written directly to you. No one... The, the people that wrote this didn't think, oh, they're going to understand it perfectly. Right? We have to do some work to understand it and kind of really get down to it. So they're combining families in this major way. Major prominent families are hooking up. They're combining. They're having kids together. They're sharing grandchildren. And eventually, they're going to become known as the Edomites. Eventually, Seir is going to kind of disappear. It might be kind of known, but it's, it's now going to be known as Edom. Edom is going to be the one that takes over. That's going to be the name that is displaced Seir, is the name of Edom. And the Edomites are going to replace the Horites. The Horites are going to disappear. Edom's going to be the one that, that uh, conquers there, that, that becomes the primary one. Esau is displacing the Horites through intermarriage. Right? Through intermarriage, Esau becomes the dominant person there. But it's, again, specifically how God had commanded Abraham not to do it. 
and how he's going to command the Israelites when they go back into the promised land after they spend some time in Egypt. He's going to tell them, do not do it through intermarriage. Don't try it. Because you're going to get mixed up with them. You're going to get mixed up with their practices. You're going to start worshiping their gods and worshiping in their ways, and it's bad news. Don't do it that way. And yet that's how Esau works with these Horites. But he also becomes contaminated by them. And, and, the, and his offspring worship their gods, not Yahweh. <clears throat> All right, last section here, monarchy. Verses 31 through 43. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, the name of this city being Dinahabah. Bela died, and Jobab, the son of Zerah of Bozrah, reigned in his place. Jobab died, and Husham, the land of the, <coughs> Husham of the land of the Temanites, reigned in his place. Husham died, and Hadad, the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place, the name of his city being Avith. Hadad died, and Sam- Samla, son of Mizrakah, reigned in his place. Semla died, and Shal of Rehoboth of the, on the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shal died, and Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, died, and Hadar reigned in his place, the name of his city being Pau. His wife's name was Mehetabal, the daughter of Metred, daughter of Mezhaba. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau according to their clans and their dwelling places. By their names, the chiefs Timna, Alva, Jetheth, Oholibama, Ela, Pinyon, Kenaz, Teman, Mibzar, Magdil, and Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. Okay, this last section, I called it monarchy, because this list shows the kings, um, this list of kings shows the dominance and prosperity of the Edomites. Right, he's pointing out not only who the kings were, but where they reigned, where they were from, the kind of scope of their kingdom. Um, And what we see here is that Edom became wealthy and prosperous and powerful long before Israel. Right? If you were taking, taking stock of who did better, Esau or Jacob, for a long time, you would say Esau won. And that's what we see here, because they are showing these kings that came from him. And if you're at the point where you're calling yourself a king, you can't be living in tents with a bunch of sheep call yourself king. You don't even have walls. You don't even have city walls. You don't have one city. You don't have anything. You can't be a king. You can be a char. You can be like the leader of your clan, but you can't be a king. So Edom has cities. They've got, they're wealthy, they're prosperous. They have all these people, and they have kings reigning in their place. Esau won. Man, if you looked at it at the time, you go, Esau clearly, like, maybe Jacob stole the birthright, but what good is that? Because look at how good Esau did. Look how good his people are doing. They're prospering way more than Jacob's people. So clearly he's the one that that won. And we see here even that God's promise to Abraham that kings would come to him, would come from him, was fulfilled first through Esau. In Genesis 17, verses 15 through 16, God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah will be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Right, so through her offspring, right, because remember, 
Esau is her grandson, that kings come from him. He has kings. They have wealth. They have prosperity. They seem to be thriving. But again, outside of God's will, doing things not God's way. Because <coughs> even to this day and in our day, you can do things not God's way. And, it, and in the short term, in this life, it works out. There's a lot of people that, that don't ever acknowledge God whatsoever, and it works out great for them. They become super rich, powerful, successful. It looks like it works way better than it does for a lot of Christians. Way better than it does. This is a, a new thing I'm trying out called, called the anti-prosperity gospel. They do it way better. Okay? It's not true. The prosperity gospel is not true. They do just fine without God in terms of these things, in terms of these factors, wealth, prosperity, power, all these things. They can, you can do just fine without God. Esau is proof of that. He does way better, way faster than Jacob. Jacob's going to have to, spoiler alert, he's going to have to go to Egypt and become slaves. Or his people, the Israelites, are going to go to Egypt. That's what we're going to do next, after this. They end up going to Egypt and becoming slaves. Esau is reigning, ruling, reigning, powerful cities, kings. He's doing great. He seems to be the one that's on the right track. And that can often be how it looks like for us in our lives, where we go, well, I'm trying to do things God's way. I'm trying to be honest. I'm trying to be right. I'm trying to do, do good and show love to people and, and do things the right way. And it doesn't seem to be like I, I'm not prospering. I'm not, uh, things don't seem to be going great. These people seem to be doing things not God's way and, and doing whatever they want, living life exactly how they want, cheating people, stealing, lying, and they're doing great and prospering. And that can be true. That's often true in our world. But if, and if that's what mattered ultimately in the end, that would be the way to go. But ultimately in the end, all of those things disappear. <clears throat> but if you follow God, you have treasures in heaven. You have permanent legacy and, and you give the glory to God where it ultimately matters. And in the end, this life is temporary and those winnings are temporary and, and ultimately, following God leads to true happiness and contentment. And that's what Jacob's going to find as well. That's what we see here. This genealogy also shows that the, uh, the prophecy to Rebekah that Rebekah received when Esau and Jacob were in her womb is also fulfilled. Genesis 25, verses, verse 23, the Lord said to her, that being Rebekah, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one stronger shall one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Right? Esau and Jacob both became became a nation. Esau is way stronger. Esau is stronger in life. When their kids growing up, he's stronger. All along, he's stronger. And even now, his offspring are stronger. Edom has kings way before Israel. Is more powerful, comes, becomes power, more powerful and stronger than Israel eventually, but it doesn't end there. Edom eventually was absorbed by Israel and subservient to it. In the end, they become subservient to Israel. Eventually that happens. God keeps his promises. All right. Last, lastly, we're going to look at Esau's legacy. And so this is going to be some other, other passages, particularly two other passages that, that come out. Um, later in scripture and to talk about what do we take away from Esau? Who is this guy? What, what point does he make in our lives? Um, the primary place that you see Esau 
spoken about is, um, is when it comes to uh, election, the doctrine of election. And kind of saying, does God choose people and not choose other people? Uh, and I'll give you, a, I'll, I'll let you know right now, I'm not going to answer that definitively for you right now. That is something for you to talk about in your community groups. But we're going to look at some of these passages because um, his legacy and what, what kind of, what do we take away from him in the end is a big question. Um, the prophet Malachi speaks to God's love for Israel and hate for Esau. So Malachi chapter 1, this is the very, he starts off his book. Verse 1, I didn't put it in there, but it's just, this is the, the oracle to Mal, the prophet Malachi. It just is an introductory thing. So straight away he says, it says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Right, so is this kind of talking about a, a, a dialogue between God and Israel? And, 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 God's, and, and God's saying, I love you. And, and he says, but you say, Israel, the people at large, say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob. <coughs> but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his, his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this. You shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Okay. So this is a, a later prophet. This is Malachi. This is close to the, close to the end of the Old Testament. Um, he's, he's prophesying much later, much generations and generations after Esau actually lived. So, but we see that God's love for Israel is demonstrated in choosing Jacob's descendants over Esau's descendants. He's saying, Jacob and Esau were brothers. I picked Jacob, and Jacob is the son of the promise, and his offspring are the chosen people. Esau's people are not. That's what he's saying here. He says, in fact, they'll be called the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. That's a big deal. Right? What does it mean? Well, first of all, it's important that we keep in mind that this is being written to Jacob and Esau's descendants um, <coughs> at a time when Israel and Edom were at war. Right? Edom was really harassing Israel. Um, and, and so he's letting them know, like, listen, you're still my chosen people. I have still chosen you. You are still the people that I have picked. Um, and so that's important that we take that away from th this, that we see that, um, that God had chosen Jacob over Israel from the beginning, was still doing so to this day with his chosen people. So God picked Jacob over Esau. But Esau was complicit. It's not like Esau never chose anything or made anything uh made any decisions that 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 disqualified him his own actions disqualified him from becoming heir to the promise and hebrews chapter 12 verses 15 through 17 speak to this this is the second passage see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of god that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. 
So we see first that Esau was bitter toward God. right? He had this animosity toward God. And he was unrepentantly sexually immoral and unholy. right? He never really repented from any of those things that he had done. From choosing these other wives or uh, giving up the birthright, being flippant about it, not caring, not, not taking what is sacred seriously. <coughs> and unrepentant is the key word, right? The fact that he didn't repent of those things. Because if we look at Jacob, you go, well, Jacob isn't perfect either, right? He messes up big time. He's kind of a sleazy guy. Like, we don't look at Jacob and go like, oh, what a great hero, right? He's kind of messed up too, but he continues to come back to God. He continues to repent, come back to God and say, I want to follow you. I trust in you. I want to believe in you. He continually takes that back to God. So some, some people have questioned, and, and some commentaries that I even read on this passage check, question um, whether or not Esau had a change of heart in his later years and turned back to Yahweh. Right? Was Esau saved or not is essentially the question. Because you can't really look at the Malachi passage and go, oh, he's definitely not saved. Look, it says, I hated Esau. He's talking about descendants. Was the individual guy Esau, did he ever come back to God? Right, there's some evidence for, there's some possibility that he did. Right? He seeks to correct his marriages. Right? He's got these Canaanite wives, but then he seeks to marry somebody. He marries an Ishmaelite, which is like a little better. Still not great, but it's like a little bit better. Um, it's closer um, to his family. And so he's, and he does that in a specific effort to try to make it right, try to, try to please his dad specifically. But so that's a possibility. Did he try to turn it around? Um, when he and Jacob come face to face, right, he hugs him, he's crying, he's like, you know, basically like they reunite in this powerful way, and he even asks him to come back and live with him. So is his heart turning around? Did he come back to God? Did he start worshiping Yahweh in his later years? Um, but here's the thing, is that if it's true, if he was saved, if he did turn back to Yahweh, if he found faith later in life, it's cold comfort. Because his legacy, his legacy was not one of faith, right? His children certainly didn't follow that path. If he did, his legacy was still a people who were murderous enemies of God's chosen people, Israel. Or they end up being a big problem for Israel. The Edomites, um, a, a couple big things that they do later on. They, didn't, they don't allow the Israelites to pass through their land as they flee from Egypt. Right? So they're fleeing from Egypt they're, um, you know, slaves, they're, they're beaten down, they're, they're, they're not in good shape, and, and they say, nope, you can't come through our land, right? That's not good. Um, King Saul and King David had to fight the, the Edomites. Um, and then during, and this is a big reason for Malachi's prophecy about the Edomites, during Israel's deportation to Babylon, right, when they're trying to be taken away to ba- Babylon, the Edomites block the crossroads, right? Some of them are trying to flee, and the Edomites block the crossroads, don't allow them to flee that way, and return them to the Babylonians. Right? Some of them are trying to escape, trying to get away. The Edomites turn them back over to the, to the Babylonians. And then finally, an Edomite king comes face to face with an Israelite king. Herod the Great was an Edomite. And he tried to kill the ultimate Israelite king, Jesus, when he slaughtered all the babies in Bethlehem. 
Right? He was a, a final adversary, and he's an Edomite. So Esau's legacy is not good, even if he somehow had this change of heart. And it's possible that Esau himself was saved, but we don't, we don't have any, any inform, enough information or access to his heart to know for sure. Um, but that's, kind of, that's true of everyone. And we never truly know the heart of anybody else. We can have good evidence, and, and there's not great evidence. There's some for him. It doesn't look good. And ultimately, even if it was true, his legacy is not one of faith, not one of following Yahweh. And that's something for us to consider as well. Because some of us <coughs> might have faith, but we're not passing it on. Some of us come to, to Christ later in life and don't ever really share it with our family, don't really pass it on. We don't have a legacy afterward coming behind us um, for our children and grandchildren and, and, and so on. And so that's something that we should consider as well. We'll wrap this up with how should we then live as we always do. A couple possible takeaways from Esau's genealogy. Number one, seek to live inside God's explicit will. That's like what God has specifically said in, in Scripture. Uh, repent when you fail and trust in His grace. Or that's living in faith, right? Saying, I, I, I want to try to live in God's will. I want to repent when I fail, because we all do. None of us are perfect at it. Certainly before we come to Christ, but even afterwards, we fail, we mess up, we make mistakes, we slip away for a time. But it's not whether we, whether we do that or not, it's what do we do about it? Do we repent? Do we come back? And trust in His grace is, is great enough to forgive us to give us new life, to give us another chance, a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance. Some of us are our 20th chance. Right? That we, that we continue to trust in His grace. Number two, that we believe in God's word and His commitment to His promises. Or we can see, even in Esau's genealogy, that God's fulfilling promises that He made to His people. And oftentimes, in, <coughs> in, in these kind of pre-fulfillment ways, right, when when God tells, tells Sarah, kings will come from you, this is not what she had in mind. Right? She didn't have in mind these kings that don't even know Yahweh. That would not be exciting for her to hear about. She wouldn't be thinking of that. But she would be thinking of the kings that will eventually come through Israel, and ultimately our king, Jesus, right, will come from her. But even through Esau, this is being fulfilled. So we can trust in his word and believe that he is committed to his promises, that he will keep them. And number three, consider the legacy of faith that you're leaving behind. Right? Like Esau, if we have that, if we consider that possibility that he might have been saved, his legacy was terrible. And so what legacy are you leaving behind? It's not just about you. It's not just about what do you believe, but what are you passing on? What are you telling other people? People that you have influence over, people that you have that look up to you in some kind of way. That might, be, that might be your family, but it might also be employees or friends, uh, younger people that know you, um, maybe even older people that, that look up to you for some reason, that people that you have influence on, what are you giving them? What are they, what's passing on to them? What are they taking away? What would it look like if we wrote your genealogy 100 years from now, 200 years from now, 300 years from now? What would they say? What would be... Your, what you passed on to these people, what would your offspring look like based on what you're passing on to them? Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for (coughs) your gift to us of another day of life uh, that we have a responsibility to do something with. God, that we have people that you're going to put in our path. Um, We have um, loved ones that we have influence over, that we have choices to make about whether or not we'll live in your will. We have decisions about how we're going to conduct ourselves today, this coming week, what we're going to do with what the time that you've given us. God, we can see what Esau did, what his descendants did with their time. And now it's up to us. What are we going to do with ours? What's our legacy going to be? What choices are we going to make today, this, this hour, this week, this month, this year? God, we seek your guidance in that. We want you to direct our paths. We want you to fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might have the power to do that, to do the good works that you've planned for us. We thank you for everything that you've given us. We want to give you all the glory. In your name we pray, amen.